Well, God saves despicable people. John Newton believed that. He wrote the hymn that we just sang, Amazing Grace. God saved a wretch like him is what he, he wrote. And Amazing Grace, that hymn, it's an account of his conversion, of God saving him, when he put his faith in Jesus. You see, before he was a Christian, he was a depraved sailor, the captain of a ship used in the slave trade from Africa back to his native England. But God convicted him of his sin. He repented of his sin, all of his sin, even looking back on that time when he despicably sold and participated in a a trade that sold other human beings into slavery. He knew it was only God's grace that could forgive him, only God's grace that could save him. As he wrote in the hymn, he was a wretch that God found, a wretch that God saved by his amazing grace. God saved him and took him from the slave trade. Eventually, he went on to pastor two congregations there in England for almost 43 years, even as part of his repentance, I think, uh, compelled to join William Wilberforce, uh, an elected official there, parliament in Britain, to fight against the slave trade. By God's grace, before he died, was able to work with William Wilberforce to see the abolition of the slave trade there in Great Britain. You see, the rest of his life, he understood that God's amazing grace had a grip on his life. And it was the same amazing grace of God that saved him, that would sustain him to the end. Even when he was old in age and his memory was starting to go, he was quoted as saying that he remembered two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That was his testimony. It was God's amazing grace that saved him. It was that same amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ that sustained him. And brother and sister in the Lord, that's the way it's always been with God's people. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's only by God's amazing grace that you were saved, that your eyes were opened to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, to see the depths of your sin and the need of forgiveness that can only be found by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Your salvation, every good thing that you have, everything you know about God, every good work in your life is owed entirely to the grace of God at work in you and sustaining you until the end. If you're a Christian here this morning, we're called to delight in the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. My friends, you don't have to wait to the New Testament to see that amazing grace. God's always shown this amazing grace to His people, Old Testament and New, Genesis to the book of Revelation. We've been seeing God's amazing grace in the account of Genesis. You see, the life of Jacob, as we've been considering his life this winter and this spring, we see that he was saved entirely by God's grace. It was God's choice of him, God's sovereign choice and election, His amazing grace that called Jacob out of sin to serve the living God. And it was God's amazing grace that would sustain him. You see, when you read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you think, well, these are the heroes of the faith. And then you start paying attention to their story and wonder, what in the world? I mean, there's a lot of unimpressive things in their life. Certainly, we see faith. 
We see God's grace. We see transformation. But then we also see fear. We see failures. We see flaws. We see the beauty of God's transforming grace. And we see the ugliness of sin. And brother and sister in the Lord, we also see that in our own lives. We are a work in progress. We're here this morning. We've said it often, Charlotte's not the promised land, so we know we're not home yet. And therefore, we are still a work of God's grace in progress. We're called to trust Him for His grace. You see, we look at the life of Jacob and understand that he is not sustained by his own wisdom. He is not sustained by his own good decisions. He is not saved by the intensity of his faith. He's only saved and sustained by the amazing grace of God. That's what we consider this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 33 and chapter 34. And if you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn with me now. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 33. If you want to take that pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 27 in the pew Bible, the the best way to stay engaged in this sermon. We preach long sermons here, by the way, maybe longer than what you're used to. The best way to stay engaged, open up a copy of God's Word and track along with me. Genesis chapter 33, starting on page 27 is where we're going to begin. And let me give you a little bit of context as you turn there. We, We last left off and Genesis, where it looked like a battle was brewing as Jacob was planning to return to the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. He'd been gone for over 20 years. He fled that land, really on the run for his life, because he swindled and tricked his brother Esau out of a blessing and a birthright, and Esau was threatening to kill him. So Esau, as we're picking up here in this chapter, was coming toward him, 400 men, that's the size of an army, Jacob was wondering, is he coming to kill me? Is he he coming to enact that revenge that he had threatened, the revenge that Jacob had fled? And we saw the last time we were in Genesis, before Jacob had to deal with Esau, God dealt with Jacob. We saw the ultimate wrestling match, one of the most obscure scenes in the Old Testament, Jacob had a wrestling match with God as God appeared as a man. He faced God, and God humbled him and changed him, changed his name, and he left with a limp. He faced God, and now he's ready to face his brother Esau. That's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 33. And if you're taking notes, the main idea that I want you to see in these passages this morning for both chapters is this. God's people must aim for full obedience and trust His grace to sustain us. God's people must aim for full obedience and trust His grace to sustain us. Let me read all of chapter 33 as we begin our time together. I'll read through all this passage at once. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? 
Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place was called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money that piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, the last chapter left off with Jacob limping into the promised land of Canaan on his way to face Esau. And that limp, it was a, a spiritual reminder, excuse me, a physical reminder of a spiritual reality that Jacob must rely on God, on His Word, and on His promises. But in this chapter, we see glimpses of, of Jacob walking by, by faith, but we also see him continuing to struggle with trusting God. So we see in the story there's clear transformation in the life of Jacob. God's grace has changed him to trust him more. He walks by faith, but we also get a glimpse of the old man. The old Jacob, trickery and deception and fear. I mean, think about his two names that he has now. His name given at birth, Jacob, meaning de deceiver, heel grabber. And then his new name that, that God gave him in the last chapter, Israel, striving with God. We see here a picture of, of both of these people, kind of the old self and the new self, Jacob and Israel. We'll see in this chapter at times, he acted like Jacob. And at times, he acted like Israel, trusting God. Well, if you put your faith in, in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, brother and sister in the Lord, consider your own life as we make our way through this chapter. Consider the new life you've been given in, in Christ that you've been called to, to, to put off the old self. And consider the need that you and I still have for God's grace to be changed, to trust Him more. Well, verse 1 starts off with a moment of suspense. What would Esau do once he reached Jacob? 
He had threatened to kill his brother. He seemed serious about that threat, seeking vengeance for Jacob, deceiving him and stealing his blessing and birthright. So we see that the Jacob, he still expects the worst. Even though he's met with God face-to-face, so to speak, meaning a, a close personal encounter with God, he's still struggling to trust God, to trust the divine protection that God had promised him. And we see what he does here, kind of a glimpse of the old man, of Jacob there at the end of verse 1. He's dividing up his wives and children. And notice who he puts towards the front of the line in the most danger. Again, again, this is like a procession, kind of the ones up front. If Esau is coming for retribution, they would be in the most danger. Maybe the ones in the back of the line would have time to flee and to get away. Up front, we see Leah, the unloved wife, and her children. Last in order, Rachel and Joseph. That's favoritism. Right? He's still walking like the old Jacob, loving one part of his family and unloving towards the other. He arranges his family in order of importance to him. And that is not walking by faith. That's not trusting God. And rather than trusting God's promise of divine protection that he already received from God, he's willing to give up and sacrifice part of the family that God gave him. Well, how would Esau respond when he first saw Jacob? Would he grab his neck and strangle him? Well, no. In verse 4, Esau grabs Jacob's neck, but not to strangle him, to kiss him. And they wept. It was a, a moment of reconciliation. Now, it wasn't Jacob's waves of gifts that he had sent forward to Esau to try to appease him that led to this moment of reconciliation. It was God himself that brought about this peace for Jacob and Esau. There's really no other way to describe the transformation and the change that took place there besides God fulfilling his promise to protect Jacob. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. Now, we see the transformation in Jacob's life, so we kind of see Israel, the new man, as the two brothers talk. Jacob recognizes that all that God has given him is from God's gracious hand. There's a repetition of grace there. Look there, starting in verse 5. When Esau saw all of Jacob's family and asked him why, who they are, Jacob responds, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then look down there in verse 11. He proclaims, God has dealt graciously with me. He was aware of the grace of God in his life. He's aware of God's gracious provision for him. Well, Christian, I wonder this morning, how aware are you of God's grace in your life? How aware are you of God's grace in your life? If you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can look back on your life and see just one long story, a lot of repetition of God's grace. You can look back before your conversion and to see God's common grace, His sovereign grace in your life leading up to that moment of saving grace where you were converted and saved and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can look back on hardship, even difficulties, and see how God was sovereignly using those and sovereignly at work in your life to do you good, to show you His grace, to save you by leading you to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a helpful meditation to look back 
and to consider God's grace in your life, to thank Him for that grace. It's also a helpful ministry in the life of this church to try to identify evidence of God's grace in each other's life. So encouragement, sometimes we think encouragement is like just patting someone on the back and saying, hey, good job doing this or that, which that's great to do. Like, thank people if they do a good job. Point that out to them, but don't let your encouragement stop there. Think about encouragement, biblical encouragement, godly encouragement, meaning seeking to identify evidence of God's grace in one another's life. Now, how would that change your marriage? If you sought to point out in one another's life evidence of God's grace, it's there. You might be upset at one another. You might have had conflict on the way to church this morning, but that does not negate God is at work. There is evidence of God's grace. For some of us, you have to look in our lives more to see it, but it's there, I promise you. How would that change your marriage? How would it change your relationship with your roommates? Rather than just getting upset at them because they didn't take the trash out and the house smells, that you seek to build them up and identify evidence of God's grace in their life. How would that change your relationship with other members of this church if we sought to build one another up by pointing out evidence of God's grace? You see, we become more aware of God's grace in our life even when other brothers and sisters in the Lord graciously point that out to us. While we have glimpses of grace and of the new man, Israel, God's transformation in his life clearly seen there, we also see glimpses of the old man. So we already see that Jacob was trying to appease Esau and really trying to navigate a difficult situation by using his riches to send these presents to appease Esau. But then we also see in this passage, he's bowing down. In verse 3, he bows down seven times. He has his whole family bow down to Esau. This really is a form of flattery. If you look back in Genesis 25, 23, which you don't need to do now, but if you look back there, you could see God's declaration that the older shall serve the younger, that Esau would serve Jacob. And so all this bowing down, it really didn't fit into that truth that God had proclaimed. I really understand this to be another form of appeasement. God had promised to protect him. He needed to rely on God's promises, not on flattery. Now, the reconciliation with Esau, I think we see here, was not due to his flattery, but it was entirely a work of God. I think it's a direct answer to Jacob's prayer. If you remember back to chapter 32, verse 11, Jacob prayed to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. He prayed, and God answered. You see, prayer, it's an act of trusting God. All of the bowing down that we see in this chapter, the gifts of appeasement, it's a sign of trying to purchase peace for yourself, trusting in your, yourself. Yet God was the one. God was the one who brought about peace for Jacob. That's why in verse 10 we see this statement, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. That close encounter with God face to face in the last chapter had prepared Jacob to face his brother's Esau. He wrestled with God face to face and he lived, and now he was prepared to see Esau's face, and he lived. God prepared him for the moment and brought forth peace for Jacob. Now, while Jacob and Esau were reconciled there, they decided to go their separate ways, which I think was a good decision. They decided on peaceful separation, but the way Jacob went about it showed glimpses of the old trickster, Jacob. 
In verses 12 through 14, we see Jacob making some excuses to not go with Esau. So in verse 13, he remarks, you know, the kids are tired. The, the flocks are they're spent. You go ahead, Esau. We will catch up with you later, which he had no intent of doing. He wants to go a, a different direction, which isn't a bad decision. I think it was actually wise and, and good. But rather than share that, he deceives Esau into thinking he'll catch up with him later. And with that, in verse 16, we see the end of Esau in Genesis. His genealogy mentioned later, but this is the end of Esau. He kind of exits the story. He heads away. While they are reconciled, at peace, no longer at war, they peacefully separate and go different ways. Now, some would see this and talk about a beautiful picture of reconciliation. I don't think that's a full picture here. It's certainly a wonderful work of God to bring about peace in a situation where it seemed like Esau was coming with 400 men to kill Jacob. But there's another picture here. Esau is reconciled to his brother, but he's not reconciled to God. You look through the story of, of Esau, we never see any interest from Esau about the God of his father Abraham. We never see any interest or concern about the promise God had given to Abraham. He has worldly pursuits and worldly concerns. What he needed most was not just to be reconciled to his brother Jacob. He needed to be reconciled to God. You see, reconciliation horizontally is important, something we should pursue, something that Christians understand we should pursue, and we understand that because we understand what it's like to be vertically reconciled with the God who created us, that we've sinned against God. There's a separation We're at war as an enemy of God is what the Bible describes us as we are dead in our sin. And what we need most, what everyone needs most is to be reconciled to the God who created you. And the only one who can bring peace between God and sinful people is Jesus Christ. He purchased that peace through his death on the cross. What we see here with Esau, yeah, picture of horizontal reconciliation, but what he needed most was to be reconciled to the God who created him. Well, the chapter closes out in verses 18 through 20 with one final glimpse of the old man. And you might miss this if we don't look carefully. Notice where Jacob settles, in the city of Shechem. Now, he's in the land of Canaan. He's returned back to the land of Canaan, but he settles in the city of of Shechem. That's a detail we need to explore here and consider what's going on. So he's in the land of Canaan, but if you refer back to chapter 28, verse 22, Jacob was under an oath to go back to Bethel, not to Shechem. Now, Bethel was about 20 miles beyond Shechem. So here's the picture. Jacob is heading back to obedience. He's getting close to obedience. Bethel, going back to Bethel to worship God, and he stops 20 miles short, kind of halfway obedience, which isn't obedience at all. And why did he stop short? We don't get all the details of why he he stops short. We just see that he, he buys some land just like Abraham did. He prepares to stay. He does some good things that are right and good. He builds an altar. He worships God. He calls the place El, Elohe Israel, meaning the mighty God is the God of Israel. It's all good things. Those are commendable steps. But he stops short of obedience in Bethel. We don't get all of the information as to why. Some speculate it may have been a a better place for trade and business. It was at a crossroads. Some speculate it 
may have seemed close enough. I mean, he was only 20 miles away. I mean, I can, I can get there. If I need to go to Bethel, I can, I can set up an altar there and worship. I'm not too far away. This should be good enough. I mean, he was in the land of Canaan, but he was almost at the end, and he had not yet persevered. He stopped short of obedience. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord, halfway obedience is not obedience at all. It may, it may seem like it sometimes, like it seems good enough, and almost may certainly count in the game of horseshoes, but it doesn't count in God's economy. We've either obeyed Him or, or not. Our aim must be obedience, meaning full obedience. And I wonder, brother and sister in the Lord, where do you stop short of obedience? Maybe you think, well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm okay. But then you give yourself time and time again to looking at pornographic content on your phone. That's not obedience. Nothing to pat your back over. You may think, I've not said unkind words to somebody this week. I've not physically assaulted anybody. But yet you're, you're harboring anger and bitterness in your heart. We haven't yet obeyed. I mean, isn't that what Jesus instructed us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? It's not enough merely to not commit adultery. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's pointing to what true faith and repentance and obedience looks like. It's not merely enough to not physically attack someone. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I wonder what halfway obedience in your life you're deceived in the thinking is, is okay. This is a good place to be. Brother and sister, don't get comfortable in that place. We'll see in the next chapter that disobedience to God places our soul in a dangerous place. You see, we've got living illustrations in the book of Genesis here. Jacob wrestling with his old self. It's really an illustration for believers to put sin away, to put off the old self. If you consider your life this week, Christian, if you think back to last Sunday afternoon when you left here, you will see evidence of God's grace. If Christ is in you, there will be evidence of good fruit in your life. So, so we should see that. Sometimes we need the help of others to see that in our lives. But it's there. There's a new self in Christ. There's a witness that is visible and seen good fruit. But also consider that wrestling with the old self, that wrestling with lust and pride and anger, disobedience to God's Word. And remember our passage from Easter that we read this morning, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The good news is if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you have been freed from the power of sin to live for the glory of God and Jesus Christ alone. That moment that God saved you, the moment of your conversion, when you were brought to repentance and faith, you were no longer under the ruling power of sin. 
We still war against the presence of sin. This side of glory, this side of heaven, will will struggle, will wrestle with the old self and the presence of sin. But the good news of Jesus Christ teaches us that we have been crucified with Christ. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, we've been set free from sin, if indeed we've trusted in Him. By the power of His resurrection from the dead, we have new life to live for the glory of God. Would you ask God for his help this week to put off the old self, to live in light of this new self in Jesus? God is delighted to hear that prayer, and he will answer that prayer in your life. The question is, will you keep praying? Brothers and sisters, may we aim for full obedience and trust God for his grace to sustain us. Well, the second scene that I want us to see is in chapter 34, chapter 34. In fact, I didn't give you the first scene, so let me give it to you. The first scene, verses 1 through 20, is the struggle with the old self. That was the first scene, the struggle with the old self. There's a second scene I want us to see in chapter 34. So struggle with the old self. Second scene, the danger of settling in disobedience. The danger of settling in disobedience. Jacob's disobedience of stopping and settling just 20 miles short of Bethel placed him and his family in a dangerous situation. His foolish and disobedient decision to settle in Shechem resulted in chaos for his whole family. He should have avoided the Canaanites. They were a pagan people, a godless people known for sexual perversity. And we see that here in this chapter. We see godlessness. What we read here in chapter 34, it's dark. It's shocking. It is disturbing. It should feel that way to us. And I understand it felt that way to the original audience as well. Indeed, that's how it's presented in this narrative from Moses. What we read here is the evil in the land of Canaan coming to bear on Jacob's family. And we see a chain of evil events connected to this decision to settle in Shechem. Now, we practice expositional preaching here in this church, meaning we're trying to look at a passage of of Scripture, and we understand God gave us His Word in books, so it's a good thing to go through books of the Bible. And Genesis 34 is really not like a chapter if you're preaching topically, you're like, yes, let's talk about Genesis 34 today. No, we're probably going to pick the passages that seem like happy and encouraging and help you leave here on a high note. But it's good for us to go through the books of the Bible and to look at all of God's Word there. It's good for us to say, let's not skip something that may be confusing, that seems dark, that is awful and terrible. It's connected to something that comes before in the book of Genesis and something that comes after. So let's see what it is that God's doing in the book of Genesis and why God saw it fit through His servant Moses for this to be included in the pages of the Bible. What we read first here in verses 1 through 7, it shows a terrible act of evil done to Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Let's read through verses 1 through 7. I'm going to take this in shorter sections as we go through Genesis 34. 1 through 7. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. 
And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. This is a tragic and dark moment. The Canaanites were a pagan and godless people. They, again, they were known for their sexual perversity. That's what we see here in this chapter. What happened here was rape. The defiling of Dinah, of Dinah, excuse me, the defiling of Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. The language in verse 2 shows us the start of this terrible crime. Look at the words there. He saw her, he seized her. Meaning, this began with lust. He saw, he lusted, he seized. We have seen that language throughout the book of Genesis. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve saw the fruit. They were tempted because of what they saw, coveting and lusting for something that did not belong to them, and they took and they ate. That same language is used here to show this was wrong, and it was born in lust, which also shows us how dangerous of a sin lust is. Do not think that you have obeyed God in full obedience just because you may not see actions that appear to be as hideous as this. Because we can all identify those sins in our heart that if not repented of, if not brought before the Lord and confessed, grow into these same hideous actions. This started, it began in, in lust. The evil action of Shechem, that's what it was born in. Now, what was done to Dinah is clearly presented in the narrative as wrong, as evil. We see down in verse 7 that when Jacob's sons, as soon as they heard of this crime, they're very angry. They immediately recognize that this is something, quote, outrageous and something, quote, that must not be done. So there is a clear condemnation of this act in the narrative. The ones commending this were not Jacob's sons. It's actually a godless people who saw nothing wrong with something hideous like this. In fact, you, you must not know God if you think something like that is okay. You can't know God and live in such evil and perverse ways. Then the response in verse 4, it shows that. From Shechem, he doesn't think much of it. He wants to marry Dinah. It may be confusing to read the language there of him being drawn to her and loving her and speaking tenderly to her. Again, this isn't like his heart changed all of a sudden and he was trying to do the, the right thing. I think what we see described here, he's consumed with her. He was consumed with her in lust in the beginning. I think this is just a continuation of that lust and and selfishness. And what stands out to me is that Shechem and his father Hamor thought nothing of what Shechem did with defiling Dinah. They didn't see it as an act of evil. They were just ready to negotiate a bride price as if nothing happened. They were a godless people. And godless people do not hate sin. Godless people enjoy sin. Godless people make excuses for sin. Godless people will give themselves over to sin. And people of God, may we look at this and be reminded we must remain sensitive to sin. 
May God give us a growing displeasure for darkness. May God cause us to grow in our hatred of sin more and more. The people of God, we must remain sensitive to evil and hate it. Well, in the blindness of their sin and in their spiritual deadness, Shechem and Hamor didn't even recognize they were negotiating with brothers that were rightly outraged and angry. In these next verses, Hamor and Shechem kick off negotiations between the tribes. Let's read verses 8 through 12. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. This proposal for Dinah to marry Shechem, it would mean their two tribes become one people. So they're proposing an alliance. Two tribes, Jacob, people of God, people of Shechem and the Hivites, they come together and become one people. Now think about that. That proposal would mean the people of God would mix in with a godless people. They would become one. And what we see here is a tremendous threat to God's promise to Abraham. If you're reading the story, your original audience would get it. Well, what would become of this? If, if they formed an alliance, if there was intermarrying that took place there and they became one, well, a godly people coming together with a godless people would result in godless people walking away from God in disobedience. But Shechem, he presses on, stating he'll give them whatever they ask. And Jacob's son see this proposition as their opportunity, and they come up with a deceitful plan to seek revenge. Let's keep reading in verses 13 through 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give, you, give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now we see darkness in Jacob's sons here. So the spotlight turns to, to them and the beginning of their moral descent. They, they start to act like Jacob, the deceiver. And they come up with a deceitful plan of their, their own. Again, the only way that they would, would, would the only way Jacob's sons would agree if to come together and form one people as if every male in Hamor's tribe was circumcised. Well, think about that. Here they are using in vain a holy sign. It's a deceitful plan. So they, they really weren't saying, hey, let's become one people. They've got something in mind, a deceitful plan, and they use a holy sign of God that shows God's eternal covenant to Abraham and his descendants. They profane that sign for their own sinful uses. Well, how would they get every adult male in the city to agree to that? That's a pretty big ask. I mean, it's one, one thing of like Shechem and Hamor were like, okay, we'll do that. Well, then you got to go convince every other guy in the city to do something crazy like that as an adult. Well, let's continue reading verses 18 through 24. 
Their words pleased Hamor, Hamor's son of Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. How did they get everyone to do this? Notice how they convinced all of their men to undergo the painful act as adults of being circumcised, the promise of riches. You will get rich if you do this. It's an easy way to motivate people. People have always been motivated by the selfish pursuit of riches. What would lead to their very slaughter, they were willing to do for the promise of earthly riches. We see in verse 23 that through proposing selfish gain, they convince all of the men, you will get rich if you just do this one thing. So they listened, and every male was circumcised. Now, again, a grown man receiving circumcision. No pain medication back in that day. At least not effective stuff like we have now. Extremely painful. It would have put them down for a few days, which would have meant no walking. Probably couldn't even lift something as light as your Bible. Like you'd feel pain in pretty much anything you would do. They wouldn't be able to walk normally. They would lack strength. They would be in a vulnerable situation. And that was all part of the deceitful and violent plan of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi. While Hamor and Shechem were kind of preparing to get wealthy, Simeon and Levi preparing for war. Let's keep reading in verses 25 through 31. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And the desire that Jacob's sons had for justice was right. Justice needed to be served in this situation. Shechem deserved to be punished for his crime. But Simeon and Levi didn't act with justice. They acted in revenge. And they were ruthless, wiping out all the men, plundering the whole city. And again, just like this might be shocking for you and I to read, I think it was shocking to the original audience to read this. This was not a right action from Simeon and Levi. 
This was an act of vengeance. Later on in the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 25 to 29, specific laws were given of what to do in this exact situation. And these laws being given were to prevent this form of vengeance and rather to seek to bring about peace and order and justice. Now, the sons of Jacob, they were on a moral descent. We see that continue in the book of Genesis later on, spoiler alert, when they sell their brother Joseph into slavery as an evil act doing harm to him. We see the kind of the beginning of their moral descent here. And notice Jacob's response to all of this in verse 30. He condemns his sons, but most of his condemnation is really about the trouble it's going to bring on him. Again, a picture of the old Jacob. You've made me the stink of the land. You put me in a dangerous situation. In verse 31, the response of Simeon and Levi, it shows their motivation. Again, what they did was not right, but the motivation was the honor of their, of their sister, not merely getting the riches and plunder from the city. They were rightly outraged and seeking justice. And what about it in a way that was evil? Well, why does Moses put this story in the Bible, the book of Genesis? You might have thought, I would be fine without this. We could just move on. I'm sure there are other things that weren't recorded in their history that we don't know about. Well, I think it's another reason we practice expositional preaching. We see how the story of the Bible unfolds. You've got to take chapter 34 and consider chapter 33. You've got to take chapter 34 and consider what comes after in chapter 45. Consider where this dark chapter began in in chapter 33, in a moment of disobedience. Although Jacob was not to blame for all of the evil in this chapter, he stopped short of obedience and settled in Shechem in a land that likely felt comfortable, probably seemed like more of a desirable place to live and to settle, yet that decision was the first link in a chain that brought about a world of trouble for his family. Brother and sister in the Lord, consider those areas that we become comfortable in disobedience are dangerous places for our soul. Consider those areas where you are becoming comfortable with disobedience to God. Those are dangerous places for your soul. There is an urgency to put off the old self and to walk in light of this new life we've been given in Jesus. And again, I wonder where are you becoming comfortable with disobedience in your life? Maybe it's like Peter prayed for in confessing this morning. Ungodly entertainment. We're coming comfortable with things that just feel normal. I mean, this is on Netflix. I know it says TVMA, but I'm mature. Yeah, and then you're giving yourself over to darkness. You're giving yourself over to things that dishonor God, things that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for. We fill our minds with darkness. What do you think is going to come out in our actions? Where are you getting comfortable with a lack of time in God's Word and prayer? It may just seem like you're busy. It may just seem like things are crazy. It's the end of the school year. There's a lot going on. I've got exams coming up. Work is crazy right now. But getting comfortable in places of disobedience is a dangerous place for our souls. Wherever it is you're growing comfortable, ask the Lord for help to get out of that. And consider how disobedience in your life also impacts the lives of others. Jacob was a father. His poor decision impacted his own family. Fathers here in the room, consider how your obedience and disobedience makes a tremendous impact on your family 
And, and please, don't make spiritual leadership so complex in the home that you fail to lead. Spiritual leadership can be as simple as waking your family up to get to church. Spiritual leadership doesn't require tons of talent. doesn't require being a Christian for 20 years. Spiritual leadership can just be simply opening up the Bible and reading at the dinner table. Spiritual obedience can simply be saying, hey, how as a family can we better honor God in the way we talk to one another and relate to one another? Think about how your obedience and disobedience impacts your family and all of us. Think about how your obedience or disobedience impacts this church family. There is no such thing as private sins. All of our sins impact not only our own soul, but the souls of those closest to us. May we ask the Lord for help to put off the old self and by God's grace to walk in the power of the resurrection in the new self. And while this dark chapter helps us look back in the story and see the importance of obedience, it also looks forward in the book of Genesis. What comes next week, Lord willing, in chapter 35 shows God's grace and His faithfulness to bring about His plans. Had this marriage gone through, it would have created one people. That would have been the end of the story of the book of Genesis. The line of promise through Jacob was in jeopardy in chapter 34, and by God's grace, the chapter turns to 35, and we see the story of God's promise secure, prevailing, continuing on. What's highlighted in this story, the hero of Genesis, God, His faithfulness, His grace. And what you can take away from that, Christian, is if you know the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, His grace and His love will sustain you until the end. We read later on in Malachi 1 and Romans 9 quotes this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, meaning Esau and his unbelief rejected him. Jacob, I've set my affection upon him is what the Lord's saying. I've loved him and therefore God is providing all that he needs to sustain him until the end. Jacob's story is a story of God's love and grace and kindness sustaining him to the end. And if you're a Christian, that's the story of your life. God's love in Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of love, Christ dying for your sin, fully paying the penalty for your sin, coming to dwell inside of you through the presence of His Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. It's indeed that love that will carry you on to the end. And our trust, as we aim for full obedience, our trust is not in our own good works or obedience. Any obedience in our life is due to the presence of Jesus Christ in us. He's the only one to fully obey God, the only one to perfectly honor God in all that He did and said, the only one to perfectly love neighbor as Himself, the one who is obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And at great cost, Jesus took your disobedience upon Himself, if indeed you've trusted in Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 saying, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We aim for full obedience, but we do not trust in our obedience. We trust in the obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we remember our need for Jesus like John Newton did. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. May we trust Him for His grace. Let's bow and pray.